Welcome to another Tyrius Cast. I'm Jim McGregor, and I'm joined today by my colleagues Kevin Crewell and Steve Liebson to discuss the U.S. Chips and Science Act. Now, if you're not familiar with this piece of legislation, it was actually passed in 2021 as part of the National Defense Authorization Act. The Chips and Science Act provides roughly $52 billion over five years to grow semiconductor manufacturing and authorizes a 25% tax credit for new or expanded facilities to make semiconductors or chip-making equipment. Now, it's part of a huge $280 billion package aimed at improving the United States' ability to compete in future technologies. Now, some have said that this will be a huge boost for the U.S. and its partners, while others have called it a boondoggle. Now, that's Bloomberg's words, not mine. Now, I'm here with my colleagues, both semiconductor experts with decades of experience in the field to discuss this. While I normally discuss this topic as well, I'm going to serve as both the moderator and the devil's advocate on this one. Because I really want to see where the discussion goes and kind of what comes out of it. I mean, I want to see, is are there really good arguments for giving a handful of companies $52 billion of taxpayer funds? And is it really worth the long-term investment? Now, with that, let me start with you, Steve. Just generally, you know, I want to get your feeling. How do you feel about the CHIPS Act? So I'm in favor of it. And that's based on a historical perspective. Uh, I can remember back to the early 1980s when we had the very high-speed IC program. Controversy was the same. Why are we giving these successful companies, and back then it was Department of Defense contractors who specialized in electronics, why are we giving them nearly a billion dollars to develop faster integrated circuits? And the reason was because we had run into a barrier. We couldn't get past one micron which seems hilarious these days, but we couldn't get past it. And so the reason for that program was to get past a billion dollars, but what we really got out of it was an entirely new design regimen based on something called VHDL. And the V in VHDL stands for VISIC, which is the name of that program. So we don't know what we'll get out of this, but I'm sure what we will get is a much more competitive U.S. semiconductor portfolio of companies. In addition to that, there was Semitech, uh, which started in 1987 in Austin, Texas, uh, that also helped provide a government-funded consortium that helped push forward uh, semiconductor technology. So there is precedent here. So you're definitely in favor of it too, Kevin? I am. Uh, I, I And I think it, it, the general consensus within the semiconductor business, both foundries and chip companies, is that this is a good thing for the United States. There are a few people who are, you know, don't believe in government subsidies. And, you know, they probably would have, we wouldn't have the internet if it wasn't for uh, the DARPA program back in the uh, 60s and 70s. Other technologies have come out of this, and we wouldn't have had those if, if uh, we took a complete hands-off approach to the technology business. And I think there is a place for government to uh, help push this along. You can look at the success of TSMC in Taiwan. That was driven in, in large part by the, the Taiwanese government pushing this as a strategic, you know, semiconductor manufacturing is a strategic industry. You know, Kevin, I'm glad you brought that up because this is intended to boost U.S. productivity. 
but it's likely that non-U.S. companies like TSMC, who's currently building a $12 billion fab out in Phoenix, Arizona, and Samsung, as well as non-U.S. equipment makers like ASML, which is the only company that makes the EUV equipment, will benefit significantly from this. So is it fair, or should this be limited only to U.S.-based companies? Well, that is a little touchier subject because we are talking about U.S. government funding. But there's an interesting example. Right now in France, the French government is helping Global Foundries and ST Micro build a fab in France. So should France taxpayer money not go to a company like Global Foundries, which is U.S.-based? So I think there's a lot of give and take on this one. I think it's a, you know, we, we can't be so strict in interpretation of who gets funded. The key here is the fabs will be built in the United States, and that's part of the guardrails to keep that make sure that uh, the money doesn't go to, you know, China or specifically, I think is one of the, the key points here. And that the hiring and, and most, you know, as much as possible, the, the workforce will be homegrown here in the United States. This is, as you mentioned earlier, this is a great opportunity for the United States to really boost uh, our STEM education programs to bring the technology talent to, to operate these fabs as well as design the chips and, and try to do more here homegrown. And in, my, in a sense, I think what this should be, this should be the the moon rocket launch program uh, and the the... You know, what happened in the 1950s when the United States went on a uh, STEM spree, we didn't call it STEM at the time, of investing in science and engineering in the 50s because we felt we were falling behind the Russians. So in this case, I think we have to look at this as we're falling behind the Chinese, Taiwanese, and others, in, and Koreans in developing this industry that's so critical to the future of everything, practically. I mean, it is, there's, not a, there's not a thing that semiconductors doesn't touch in, in the economy these days. So I want to have an even tighter focus on that. If the fabs are being built in the United States, which we want, and they're going to employ American citizens or at least people who have H-1B visas, that's what we want. We want those fabs here in the U.S. because we view semiconductors as a strategic uh, resource. And if those things are not made in the U.S., then we have the problem that we have right now. We have a major supplier in Taiwan that's under constant threat by mainland China. And we're trying to avoid that. The only way we're going to avoid that is to get fabs built here in the U.S., whether it's built by U.S. companies or non-U.S. companies. We want those fabs here. Now, ASML, that's a different example. ASML just happens to have a de facto monopoly on EUV steppers. So if you want advanced technology to go into the fabs, which of course we do, ASML is going to have to benefit because we can only get that equipment from ASML. Now, you mentioned Taiwan, but uh, there's another country that has a lot of fab capacity that happens to be very close to another aggressor. That would just happen to be Korea. <laughs> South Korea. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. So certainly yeah, the, the, the Korea Peninsula, even though South Korea is not, you know, a country we'd be concerned about normally, North Korea being just very, so close and being, you know, a, a wild card in terms of what they could do and what they're willing to do. 
it is another another concern. It is scary to think. Well, you can extend that, right? We have fabs in Europe now, and we used to not be concerned about them, but now suddenly we need to be concerned about them because we have a newly aggressive Russia. That's true. It's it's scary to think that majority of our fab capacity is within striking distance of communist or, I should say, dictators' regimes. So, yeah. Well, with ICBMs, every fab in the world is within shooting distance of these people. Well, if, if they're launching ICBMs, I actually, actually, at that point in time, I don't think the fabs are my, my biggest concern. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, too. okay. There'll be no more Camaro. Yeah. That's true. You guys have made a great argument for it. However, you know, I still got to go back to this. And obviously, a lot of Americans are thinking about this because Americans. the U.S. government put, you know, billions of dollars towards solar uh, solar manufacturing. And that was a dismal failure. I mean, basically, we still have none in the U.S., not to mention all the bailouts that went to the automotive companies. And let's face it, consumers and labor didn't benefit a lot of from those so, I mean, really, is it really worth giving um, an industry that is making record profits, makes huge returns, you know, all these are all multi-billion dollar companies. Is it worth giving these guys that much money? Okay, I got a lot of, I got a lot of objections to things that you just yeah, said. Yeah, and the first one is, and the first one is that I, I think the fact that we offshored our, most of our solar in- industry to China was a mistake. I agree with that. But, you know, Solyndra is a bad example, I think, because Solyndra's technology was unproven when they got that money. But let's talk about the bailout of the auto industry. If we hadn't had the bailout of the auto industry in 2009, General Motors wouldn't exist today. I don't think that's unsuccessful. That's successful, assuming you'd like to buy General Motors products. And as far as other types of bailouts, the U.S. government throws a lot of money away. We're all aware of that. They buy military equipment that the military doesn't want. There are all sorts of programs where they throw money away. We're all agreed. Semiconductor is an important strategic resource for the United States, and we're talking about a relatively small amount of money out of our regular budget. So I don't see that as throwing things away. We have had successes with government investment, and we've had failures. I'm looking forward to this being a success, not a failure. Well, should they be required to repay this money with, you know, they're also getting tax savings here. So should they be required maybe from future profits to repay some of this, kind of like the automotive industry did, since that's your example? Well, thank you for bringing that up, because the other objection that I had from your previous question was (laughs) this record profits thing. And I'd like to point out that Intel didn't post record profits last week with their Q2 profits. They just missed. And so, you know, things are not as copacetic and wonderful in the semiconductor industry at the moment as you might think. And at the moment, we're in the middle of a chip shortage, so everybody's selling as much as they can. But this is a boom and bust industry. And it won't be more than a couple, three years before we're suddenly in a glut. Okay. So that sort of brings the question. So if we wind up funding this thing and it leads to a glut of semiconductors, that might be considered a bad thing. Uh, and the part of the problem with the semiconductor industry is the long lead times. You know, we're putting this money in to now build to build a fab and to build the next generation of technologies. It takes years. So we're now just putting money into this stuff. 
and the shortage is today, and it's not going to help today. Uh, it's not going to help next year. It's not even going to help the year right. after, but the year after that. That's when this kicks online. And it's not also not going to help a lot of the shortage that we have at the moment because that stuff is not being built in the fabs of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It's being built in the fabs of yesterday. And one of the interesting things that I discovered just recently is that all that wonderful automation, the automated transports that we have in the 300 millimeter fabs, apparently that hasn't been backfitted to the 200 millimeter fabs where 80% of the semiconductors are made at the moment. That's an interesting aspect, and I'm hoping some of this money goes towards modernizing those fabs so they can be more productive. But most of the time, they try to obsolete 200 millimeter fabs for the 300 millimeter when possible. But the buildings, you know, are, are usually incompatible. You'd have to completely build a new building for 300 millimeter. I think to migrate. The the old process nodes continue to be built on those 200 yeah. millimeter. Fabs. Well, that's a, yeah. I, I I doubt you know just because I know that they want to maximize the return and a lot of the products they're producing are very very low and they're basically commodities i, I i'll be honest with you if they actually put some of that money back in the older fabs i'll be amazed yeah i'd agree with that i don't think it's going to happen i i suspect you're right especially since this money is limited to u.s fabs and there are only two or three u.s fabs left that are doing 200 millimeters however skywater has announced that they want to build another fab and they are not on the leading edge. They're not going to be building leading edge fabs. So they are building stuff with older technologies as we speak. That is true. But they do specialized processes and most of their funding comes from DARPA and other government agencies. So that's kind of a whole different one. Yeah. And they'd probably find older equipment. It's harder to find, I think, the older equipment. These but, but they have announced that they want to build a whole new fab with this money. Yeah. What you brought up, you know, you, you brought up the whole boom-bust cycle here. I mean, that's one of the key questions. They're talking about a five-year investment, $52 billion here. So it's going to roll out over time. And it takes two to, you know, two plus years, two to three years to build a new fab, especially if you're starting a greenfield site. So if it's going to take that long to build fabs, and we're going to be rolling out fabs for two to seven years going forward, you know, and, and China's going to be doing the same thing because they want to be self-reliant and they want to build more fab capacity. You know, are we just self-perpetuating this uh, a super oversupply bus cycle? Again, if you look at this from the strategic point of view, if we want to be able to build the strategic parts here in the U.S., we need these fabs. But beyond just the fabs, we also need um, the development work. We also need, you know, these are we're talking about production fabs, but there's also R and D has to be done. I, I just got back from visiting IBM in Albany. There are research labs up there on semiconductors working with uh, New York State and uh, major universities under the New York Creates banner where the New York, actually New York State owns the fab building and IBM leases it out. And so there's a public-private partnership that's been going on for years now. This is not a, this is not a new project. And they're developing bleeding edge new process nodes that the two nanometer chips uh, and they're working with Samsung and also uh, Intel on developing, you know, kind of research as a service here. And that also is, they have opportunities for students to come in. They have internships. They work with all those professors and, and, and help inspire students to get involved in semiconductor business. Part of the problem, I think we also are competing with the, 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 um, CS degrees 
there's there's not enough people going into double E, not enough people going into STEM, and they, they we need this public private partnership and experience experiential places where they people get excited about building chips. And I think this was you know what I saw in Albany was a really good example, and I think that's something that we need above and beyond just manufacturing plants and manufacturing. I, I think I think this is where we have to congratulate Pat Del Singer at Intel because. In their announcement of opening up the Ohio fabs, they also announced a partnership with the Ohio University System to help develop these programs to generate more graduates who are ready to go and work in these fabs. I think Arizona's said that that for a while, right, Jim? Yeah, they have. Uh, there's a huge investment in the universities, especially Arizona State here, not to mention there's also a technical college here just for people that are going to be working in a fab. Um, it's in Mesa, Arizona. So, I mean, there, there is a huge investment here and there always has been, but you know, there's, there's microchip, there's Intel, Motorola, you know, on and on and on that have been here for the entire history of the semiconductor industry. But guys, you know, one of the estimates I saw was it's going to take 300,000 new highly skilled people to operate these fabs. Even with that investment, it's still going to take years. Can we actually generate enough graduates in the U.S. to operate these fabs? You mentioned H-1Bs B visas earlier, Steve. So, right. You know. So historically, we never have. Well, never is a long time. Historically, since the 1970s, we have not. We've depended on foreign students coming here, getting advanced degrees, and going to work in our fabs. And I foresee that we're going to have to depend on that forever because the United States doesn't have a lock on smart people. So we are going to have to revamp our H-1B program. We're going to have to allow more people in. But this is something separate from the CHIPS Act. Yeah, but uh, as I, was just, I was just reading a political article that I sent to you guys. Unfortunately, right now in, in the United States government, um, Immigration policy is sort of a third rail uh, that any politician, uh, especially the Republican side, uh, if they bring up reform, it, it's it's almost suicidal. Uh, the, and, and the response they get is very extreme because immigration has been conflated with all kinds of, you know, issues with borders and such. But the, the fact, I think it's widely recognized that highly educated H-1B workers with advanced degrees or advanced skills that those are desirable immigrants to have in the United States. They're productive. They they don't steal other people's jobs because there's not enough of that talent in the United States today. We need more. Also in the article read, 70% of the fab workers are technical, but it only it only requires an associate's degree, only a two-year school. I think you mentioned a similar gym that the, there's that technical school. So that can help in the short term but you also have a chicken and egg until the fabs are built and the jobs are there. It's hard to uh, incentivize people to go into these programs. So they, you need to get the, 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 uh, the fabs up and running with, with a, uh, a, a talent pool that at the moment doesn't exist. Well, I would argue that I think that this was a major miss in this legislation. You know, I think H-1B visas should have been there. Not only are they highly skilled, but these are the people that typically come and start businesses, yeah, I know. especially tech businesses right. but that, in the they, U.S. They, they originally <laughs> wanted to have that in there, and they had to pull it out in order to, to clear political uh, hurdles. Right. 
So we need another bill. Okay. Okay. So obviously this bill didn't encapsulate everything. And there's one other area that I'm really, really concerned about. And you guys can tell me if I'm wrong, but let's face it. Semiconductor manufacturing is one part of the value chain. You have the raw materials. Most of those are being mined outside the U.S. You have the packaging. Most of that's done in Southeast Asia. So you have this whole, not to mention design. Yeah, we have a lot of design in the U.S., as well as Europe and our other partners. But you have to have this whole value chain. Does this legislation miss other key parts? I mean, what does it matter if we have the fabs, if we don't have enough wafers and materials for the wafers, or if we don't have the packaging to actually package the products? I think what you're pointing out here is that uh, the politicians at the moment have to walk a very fine line to pass what they can get passed. And again, just as with the education, you're talking about another bill that needs to be passed down the line. I agree with you 100%. The raw materials, the feedstock for these fabs, including finished wafers, has got to come from somewhere. And at the moment, it's not coming from the U.S. largely. Mm -hmm. And just to know, we used to have a lot of silicon ingot manufacturing in the U.S. You know why we don't? Because a lot of them were huge polluters. Huh. Matter of fact, right. uh, well, that's why we don't have fabs. Silicon Citix was here in Arizona, and they just they were so bad they got kicked out. I mean, they were so bad. Yeah, well, in the case of, you know, in Silicon Valley's. There are no silk active fabs anymore, and some of the fabs are still considered uh, were considered Superfund sites that had to be cleaned mm-hmm. up. Right, exactly. But it's not just fabs. Yeah. I mean, I remember living in Silicon Valley, and for decades there was an old Memorex disk drive facility that had been bulldozered, but the land that it was on was still a Superfund site for decades after they were long gone. So, you know, there's plenty of pollution to go around, including old gas stations. We've just been sloppy all around, and it's not unique to the semiconductor industry. No, you're right. Uh, And not just semiconductors, but the entire high-tech industry has been kind of criminal in that respect. Yeah, PCB Uh, manufacturing was another really bad one. Exactly. And and I used to live down the road from Rocky Flats, where they process plutonium for nuclear weapons. And that, that was a super fun site, too, as you might guess. You know, I always knew you had a natural glow to you, Steve. Now I know why. I know. (laughs) Okay, I got one last one for you guys. And this is probably the most controversial one. It's come up lately over the past week or two. That is the fact that a handful of companies are really going to benefit from this the most, the people that have the fabs. So what does this mean for the people that don't have fabs, the AMDs, the Qualcomms, the NVIDIAs of the world? Should there be a requirement that the recipients be pure play foundries. That would mean Samsung and Intel would have to spin off their foundries. Yeah, I, I'm not in favor of that. Um, uh, you know, we, what we want is we want semiconductors made here in the U.S. The only way to do that is to get fabs built. And you have to look pretty hard to find a pure play foundry in the United States of any major size. And forcing Intel to spin off Intel Foundry Services doesn't strike me as a great idea. Yeah, well, and, and and having Samsung, although both companies do uh, are planning, at least in the case of Intel, planning IFS to be somewhat semi-independent, uh, and Samsung also is their foundry is, can be semi-independent. Uh, Global Foundries is a pretty big fat, but they're not on those leading edge stuff right now. The or interested in getting well, there. you never know. 
give them, give them. Well, it's true. You yeah. never know. But the, yeah, they may still have some EUV equipment they haven't sold yet. <laughs> the, the, thank, the, thank, thank you, Apple. Yeah, the challenge <laughs> there, I think, is, you know, we're, we're hitting, a, we're trying to go for a goal. And as Steve said, and as the, to get semiconductor manufacturing back in the United States and growing, we're at a, a faster pace. And so, yeah, there's got to be some compromise here. I know, like the Qualcomm's and AMD, the fabulous guys are a little concerned because they they would hope there was going to be some R and D credits for design work, and that got pulled out of the bill. But uh, I don't think people are going to stop designing here, and therefore I I don't think you know because of the talent pool that is here for the ship design. So I don't know if that's as as a as essential a problem right now as uh, the the manufacturing side. So also I I want to point out that. Uh, some of those fabulous vendors are going to want to see a strong Intel Foundry services to add more competition to the high-end fab worldwide population because that more competition means more price competition and that would be good for them. So yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that they're not going to get some of this uh, governmental largesse out of the CHIPS Act, but at the same time, if it's successful, what they will get is a more vibrant Foundry community from which they can draw their chips. Now that's probably not going to work so well for AMD. I can't see AMD going to IFS and getting their chips made. But hey, you never know. Stranger things have happened. But don't forget, AMD can still leverage uh, when TSMC builds a fab in Arizona or Samsung expands their fab work. So, I mean, AMD will still leverage that part of the expansion in the United States, diversifying their supply chain geographically. Well, and coopetition has always been a factor in our industry. So, like you said, you never know. Well, gentlemen, I completely agree with you. Even though I have to play devil's advocate on this, I do agree with you. But as kind of a final statement, we we obviously identified that there's still holes. I mean, this isn't perfect. And to think that it's going to be perfect is kind of foolish. So what, you know. Politicians were involved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I, from each one of you, what else needs to be done going forward, whether it's from a continued build-out perspective or putting guardrails on this? What else, what, what message do you want to give to Washington and the industry? Uh, I'll go first and see how Steve uh, uh, deferred to me by not speaking, uh, speaking up fast enough. <laughs> I think the education part is really important. I think the the fact that we have to create a labor force here to go along with these advanced manufacturing capabilities is uh, hypercritical. And an, and an openness that there has to be ability for other players and other people with new ideas to come in and and participate. So I'd also like to see maybe some of that money funded into advanced research and, you know, kind of more of a DARPA-like uh, situation where we fund some new creative ideas. There's, there's stuff beyond traditional semiconductors that we should be looking into as well for the for 10 years or more down the line. And I would like the government to take a more serious attitude towards continuing its nurturing of the semiconductor industry. If it's really a strategic resource, that's something we want to do. The government does have ongoing subsidy programs for what we consider strategic resources, including both in agriculture and oil and gas exploration. Those industries routinely get large subsidies every year, and we don't think anything about it because it's just built right into the budget. 
But for semiconductors, it seems as though the government pays a lot of attention when there's some sort of an emergency or a crisis. And then after the crisis passes, their attention is diverted elsewhere. If we really believe that semiconductors are strategic, it needs continuous attention. You know, I agree with you, and I'm going to jump in with one other point here, and that is the fact that the government needs to think not, and and, and this is kind of a messaging issue for me, and that is that it's all about self-reliance. No, we're not ever going to build everything and do everything in the U.S. We're not going to be good. We're not going to be competitive at certain things, and we need to realize that. So when you look at this and you look at trying to make the U.S. competitive, you need to look at it not just from the perspective of what's actually in the U.S., but what's also in our partnering economies, whether that's Europe, whether that's Asia, whether it's whatever. We are a global economy. We use global resources, whether they're labor, whether they're raw materials, whether they're manufacturing, whatever. They really need to look at that holistically and say that, you know, it's an investment across the industry. Um, and also the fact that, you know, especially when it comes to labor, you know, that labor issue, it, quite honestly, the fact that H-1B visas are even an issue still amazes me. You know, if the best and brightest want to come to our country and work and help create jobs and help create industries, we should have been inviting, the, we should be inviting them with open arms, not shutting the door. So I really, really hope that the government takes a bigger look at this. Could agree more. No other comments. No. <laughs> no I, 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 you know, I, I think we're we're basically um, singing as a choir here, and we, we pretty much agree on our, on those things. So much for your uh, devil's advocate, bro. Yeah, I'm not that good at it. Oh well. I guess with that, this brings us to a wrap of another Tyrius cast. Please remember that Tyrius Research is a market research and advisory firm that provides custom research and advice to the entire high-tech ecosystem, from sensors to the cloud. This includes custom market sizing, product and company competitive analysis, M&A evaluations, product and corporate strategic planning, and marketing strategies. If you would like more information about Tyrius Research or inquire about our services, please contact us directly. I'm Kevin at Tirius Research, T-I-R-I-A-S research.com. Our moderator was Jim at TiriusResearch.com. We also have Francis at TiriusResearch.com, who was not on the call, and uh, Steve at TiriusResearch.com. You can also visit our website at www. Guess, it, guess what it is? It's TiriusResearch.com. Yeah, surprise, surprise. Please keep up with us on social media, at Tirius Research on Twitter, at Steve Leibson, which is L-E-I-B-S-O-N, first name Steve, S-T-E-V-E. And then I'm at Crewell, K-R-E-W-E-L-L for Kevin Crewell. And then F. Sideco, F-S-I-D-E-C-O for Francis. And uh, Jim has this weird tech strategist thing, T-E-K-S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-S-T, which is a weird spelling of McGregor for, for his uh, <laughs> Twitter handle. Also. Look for our articles and podcasts on Forbes.com, EETimes.com, EEJournal, ECT News, and Microelectronics in Taiwan, assuming you read Mandarin. In addition, we also have white papers posted on our website and a link in our newsletter, a link for our newsletter, which you can also subscribe to if you would like for us to send it directly to you in your email. The newsletter comes out monthly, usually, and covers topics that we have discussed in our articles, in our research, and in white papers. 
You can find this and other Tyrius Cast on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes. Just search for Tyrius Research. That's T-I-R-I-A-S Research. Thank you for joining us. If you have any feedback on this Tyrius Cast or recommendations for a future Tyrius Cast, please contact us directly. Once again, that's Steve at Tyrius Research, Kevin at Tyrius Research, Francis at Tyrius Research, or myself, Jim at Tyrius Research. Thank you, and have a great day. Thank you.